0: Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Well, welcome everyone to the Vineyard. It's good to be with you all. My name is Christian Roots, and I'm the associate pastor here. I'm glad to, to be with you all today. And welcome to those of you who are joining us via the parking lot, to those of you on Facebook or on YouTube or on our website, enjoying the live stream. It's good to have you along for the ride as well. And we especially want to welcome you if this is your first time here. And so if you are a guest today, thank you so much for coming. And on your way out, you're going to find on the table a little welcome packet. And so we want to just invite you to to grab that on your way out. And again, just thank you so much for coming and being a part of our, our church this morning. All right. Well, today I'm excited to announce we are selling our new Grove City Vineyard t-shirts out under the tents in the parking lot. And so for just $10, you can get yourself a brand new t-shirt. And all of the proceeds are going to go to drilling fresh water wells in India, which is a great thing. And so after the service today, you can head out to the parking lot and grab yourself a shirt for $10. We're also going to be selling these over the next two weeks as well, the next two Sundays. And so if you don't have any money on you, you can bring some. Then, If you're watching from home, you can also head to the church anytime today before 11.30 and you can grab yourself a t-shirt. And on Wednesdays between 9 and 2, the staff will be here and you can grab a shirt as well. And then we're asking everyone to wear your shirts either on September 26th, that Saturday, or Sunday the 27th, and to let as many people know as you can about the great organization we partner with, Charity Water who is drilling freshwater wells all over the world. All right. Well, if you have a personal need, please reach out to me. My email is christian at gcvineyard.org, and I'd I'd love to try to help you out if I can. And then lastly today, we're not going to be taking up a physical offering, but if you brought your tizer offering, you can drop those in the baskets in the back. Of course, you can also give online. If you go to gcvineyard.org, you... Click on the giving tab. You can give online that way, which I find really convenient. And then you can also mail in your tithe and offering as well. And so thank you. Thank you, church, for your generosity. All right, let's pray, and then we'll open up to today's message, to God's Word. We love you, Jesus. We love You. We love You, Jesus. And the reason that we're gathered here is not because we just love singing songs. It's not because we just love trying to keep track of our kids as they run around us while some guy speaks for f- half hour. It's, we're here, Father, because we, we love You. Because we love You, Jesus. We're here not just for the friendships. We're, we're here not just to get out of the house. We're here because we want to meet You. We want to encounter You, Father. And so I, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that You would give us a fresh encounter with You. Would You speak to us through Your Word? Would it, would it connect? Would we would we dwell and would we think about what You want to share with us today? I, I pray, Father, that it wouldn't simply leave our minds by the time we get to the parking lot. That, That it would connect with us and stay with us. I I pray, Father, for power on my words right now in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Come do what only you can do. Amen. Amen. Well, today I'm going to be concluding our sermon series that we've called Lessons from the Wilderness. And over the course of this series, we've been examining some of the wilderness experiences of different biblical characters, hoping to learn from their stories, their success, as well as their failures, that we too might follow Jesus well in the wilderness. And today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you head there with me now, Exodus chapter 3. And as you turn there, let me catch you up on where we're at. Moses, you might remember, was a Jew, and he He had grown up in privilege in Pharaoh's court after being discovered in the Nile by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And after killing an Egyptian who was beating one of his fellow Jews, Moses was forced to flee Egypt to escape capital punishment. Moses fled to the wilderness, eventually arriving in the desert land of Midian, where he found a wife and settled down. And here at the start of Exodus chapter 3, Moses is now 80 years old. And he's been in the desert of Midian. He's been in the wilderness now for 40 years. Some of us have had a rough year. Moses had a rough 40 years. Here's what we read in Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Amen. There's three lessons that I I want us to take away from Moses' encounter with God in the wilderness. And and here's the first. Number one, today's passage teaches us that the wilderness journey is inevitable. It's inevitable. Now, I, I know I've already repeatedly stated this fact throughout the course of this series. This whole series, in fact, is kind of one long commentary on the inevitability of the wilderness experience. But I don't think we've seen the truth laid out quite so clearly in this series than right here in Exodus chapter 3. For this is what we read in in verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. What is God saying here? He's saying this. Moses, I'm going to bring you out of the wilderness. I'm going to send you down to Egypt that you might be the means through which I rescue my people. But then after bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, I'm going to bring you back to this mountain, which was Mount Sinai, in order for you to worship me. Don't don't you see, before bringing Moses out of the wilderness, God had already planned Moses' return trip. Moses hadn't even left the wilderness yet. And yet God had already bought him a non-refundable ticket back to the wilderness. And and, you know, I'm I'm stressing the inevitability of our wilderness journeys, not because of, of my sunny and rather chipper outlook on life but because I long for each of us to be prepared. I long for each of us to be prepared. Friends, listen to me. It would be utterly foolish to head down to Louisiana right now and build a house right on the Gulf, right, right, right on the surf, without storm-proofing the house first. Right? Can we, can we just agree with that, on that? Without installing impact-resistant windows and doors, without installing metal straps to hold down your roof, without installing vertical door braces to protect your garage, without, in in other words, making any accommodations for tropical storms and hurricanes. It would be utter foolishness to plop a house down right in the sand, on the gulf, without any protection from a storm, on the hope, on the hope that a, a storm is just never going to come. And in the same way, church... It is just extreme foolishness. It is extremely unwise, let me put it that way, to live our lives without preparing for eventual storms. Living on the hope that a storm is just never going to come our way. If we fail to prepare ourselves for an eventual storm, we're we're simply living on the hope that our health is always going to be perfect. Perfect. That we're never going to be betrayed by someone we care about, that our marriage is always going to feel perfect, that our, our kids are always going to make the right decision, that our, our career is just always going to be fulfilling and satisfying. And so how do we storm-proof our lives, as it were? How, how do we prepare for the storms that will eventually come? Let me just really quickly suggest three ways to prepare for the storms of this life. Number one, this is a pretty obvious one, we develop and we cultivate intimacy with Jesus. This is always number one. We read about Him in in our Bibles. We read and we, we soak in the messages, the teaching of Jesus. We talk to Jesus about our problems and about our desires. And we thank Him for what He's given us. We worship God regularly in song, not just at church, but throughout the week. We worship God. We praise Him. We delight in Him. And we confess our sin and our shortcomings to Him. Secondly, to prepare ourselves for a coming storm, we surround ourselves with good community. This is another big one. Fellow believers who know us, who know our strengths and our weaknesses, our temptations, and our history. It is not enough, friends, to simply be in a room with a bunch of other Christians. You have to be known. Do other people know your struggles, your temptations, your your past? And, And then thirdly, we want to prepare ourselves for a coming storm. We need to learn to live by faith. You know, when God asks us to give financially, even if we already feel a crunch, we give. And when God asks us to step out and serve or share or lead, even if it's anxiety provoking, we say yes. We become people who regularly step out in faith so that when the storm comes and when our faith is really put to the test, we'll find that our, our faith muscles don't collapse under the strain. You know, that's what happened week one. If you remember back to the first week of the series, God invites the Israelites to, to head into the promised land, and it's too, too heavy a lift for them. They don't have the faith muscles to shoulder the burden. Their, their faith muscles just collapse under the weight. Listen, I, I, I say this with all pastoral affection, okay? Anytime a pastor says that, you know it's, What's coming? If you are not cultivating intimacy with Jesus right now, spending time with Him, and if you do not have Christian friends who really know you, really know you, and if you are not in the habit of exercising faith, even in small ways, you haven't prepared yourself, friend, for a coming storm. You just haven't. You you simply don't have the support structures in place that you'll need when the storm hits. You need an intimate relationship with Jesus and the support of of believing friends who will pray for you, who will listen to you and encourage you. And you need a faith that has been tested and strengthened. And if those things are not present in your life right now, you are living on the hope, on the hope that a storm is just never going to come your way. You are living without the proper support structures. And again, I I say this with love, my my fear is that should you find yourself in the midst of a real storm, that you simply will not be able to weather it. Friend, if you storm-proofed your life, are are you prepared? I, I, I urge you, I urge you to start today. Second lesson from today's passage is this. The wilderness reminds us that we are not God. That We are not God. This is what we read in verses 10 through 14 in today's passage. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Has sent me to you. Now, what does God mean when he says, I am who I am? To be honest, we could spend an entire series, couldn't we, dissecting this this one phrase. There have been large tomes written just about this one little phrase. But but let me suggest one point that God is making here. In in his conversation with God, Moses is actually complaining about his new assignment. He he feels unqualified, incompetent, and unworthy of the task. He's pushing back against God. And so finally, when God is asked to give his name, he says to Moses, I am who I am. And in other words, he's saying, my name is not I am who you want me to be, Moses. I am who I am. I am the Lord. It's important to note that God reveals himself to Moses in this passage as a fire. And this fire, it represents the, the holiness of God, to be sure. And, and, this fire of God, it represents the unchanging nature of God. Look, if, if you grab a ball of clay, or if you grab a, a ball of dirt, you can mold or manipulate that ball of clay or that dirt in your hand. You, you can... You can stretch it out, you you can mold it as you wish. But if you try to grab fire, you try to grab fire, and you try to manipulate it or mold it in your hand, you will find that it is the fire that does the manipulating. It is the fire that molds you. This is what God is saying here in part. I am not a God who is molded, Moses. I am a God who does the molding. I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be, Moses. And you know, when we're in the wilderness and we find that we're not getting our way and our prayers are not being answered, it is then that we learn that that God is not who we want him to be. He's not a a friendly grandfather in the sky who just gives us what we want. But rather, he is a God who, who says to us, I am Who I am. You know, if we were honest, most of us would just say, I I just wish God was a a friendly, kind grandfather in the sky, because what do grandparents do? They take out the grandkids, and they take them and they buy them toys, and they stuff them full of candy and full of ice cream, and then they bring them back at 8 o'clock at night, full of sugar, and say to the parent, here you go, full of sugar, have fun trying to get them to fall asleep, right? I mean, that's what a grandparent does. Unless a grandparent has assumed the role of a, a full-time caregiver, grandparents spoils their kids. That's what you do. And... and I imagine 30 years from now, 35 years from now, if my little guy has a kid of his own, I'm going to spoil that child because that's what a grandparent does. Full him with candy, full him with ice cream, bring him back, okay, parents, your turn. But God says, look, I I am not a a friendly, kind grandparent. I love you, I love you, I love you. But I, I want you to know, like a good father, like a good mother, I'm not just going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you also what you need. I am who I am. When we're in the wilderness, God is saying to us, your, your plans for your career might not be my plans. And your timeline for acquiring a house and a dog and, and 2.5 kids might not be my timeline, if that's my plans for your life at all. Your roadmap, God is saying, is certainly not my roadmap, for I am. Who I am. Now, how do we respond to this reality that God's design for our life is is not our own? How how do we respond when we're in the wilderness and we're sick or we're lonely or we're out of work or we're struggling with mental health issues? How, How do we respond? Let me suggest to you just very quickly two ways to respond when we're in the desert. Number one, we have to use our reason. We have to think. We have to think. Here's what Pastor Tim Keller says. He says this. He says, people are always mad at God. Why doesn't He stop the suffering? That anger presumes He's infinite, great, and powerful enough to stop it, right? But if you have a God who is infinite and great enough for you to be mad at Him for not stopping the suffering... Then you have to have, at the same time, a God who is infinite and great enough to have a perspective on it you don't have, and to have reasons for it you can't see. You can't have it both ways. Do you understand? You can't stay mad. Now, here's what Keller, who is much smarter than me, is saying, okay? Here's what he's saying. I want you to dial in here. You can only be mad at God for not ending your suffering if this God is great and powerful enough to intervene in your life and stop it. In other words, if God isn't great enough or powerful enough to intervene, then you can't be mad at Him. He's simply impotent. He can't help it. He's just not powerful enough to intervene. But if you accept, if you accept that God is powerful enough to intervene in your life to bring a miracle, then you must also accept The fact that this same God must be so much smarter and wiser than you. So much smarter and wiser than me that he has reasons for your suffering that you cannot see. To accept that God is great enough to provide a miracle is to accept that God is great enough to design a better plan for your life than you could. And I'm going to read that sentence again, but listen, I'm not reading this for you. I'm reading this for me. I need to hear this again, okay? So just... Indulge me for a second. I'm going to read this sentence one more time. To accept that God is great enough to provide a miracle, Christian roots, is to accept that God is great enough to design a better plan for your life than you could. Friend, we need to reason like this in the midst of a desert, okay? You're in the desert. We need to think, And secondly, when we're in the desert and it seems as if God doesn't see things the way that we do, we need to acknowledge that we're never alone. We're never alone. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 again. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. The Lord makes two things clear to Moses in in this passage. He says to Moses, I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be, and I will be with you. Friend, the, the mark of a true Christian, the sign that a, a miracle has occurred in someone's life, that someone has been born again, that they've been regenerated, made new, is when someone is willing to say this. This is a mark of a true Christian. I would rather have Jesus' presence in the wilderness than all of the benefits and the luxuries and the power that this world has to offer. That is a sign that someone has experienced new life. I would rather have Jesus' presence in the wilderness than have everything else this world has to offer without Him. And the wilderness, friends, it gives you a chance to say to God, "Your, your presence means more to me than my health if you're sick right now. If you're sick, you have a chance to say in the wilderness, Father, your presence it means more to me than my health. Your presence means more to me than my loved ones if you're experiencing bereavement. Your presence means more to me than a spouse if you're single. Your presence means more to me than a child if you're experiencing infertility. Friend, the the, the wilderness, it gives us the chance to say, your your presence means more to me, Father, than anything else you could take away. The same God who is a fire, who will not be molded or manipulated, also says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you in the desert, and I will be with you when I bring you out. Finally, here's quickly, here's the third lesson from Exodus 3. Here's our final point. We're delivered from the wilderness not just for our sake, but for the sake of others as well. Let's look at verses 7 through 10 one last time. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God has not come here to Moses and say, Mo, you've been in the wilderness for 40 years now, and you're 80 You've had a good ride. So now I'm going to bring you out of the wilderness and it's time to retire. It's time to sit back. It's time to get in as many rounds of golf as you can. It's not what he says. God says, Moses, I'm bringing you out of the wilderness, but I'm bringing you for the sake of others. You've been called out. You've been delivered that others might be blessed as a result. Now, Before I continue to unpack this last point, let me just say this parenthetically. I'm going to try to go through this quickly because I'm running out of time. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your life needs to be undergirded by a fundamental assumption or belief. And that belief is this. God wants to use me. God wants to use me. This fundamental belief should stay with you for the entirety of your life. God wants to use me. Now, you might say, well, I'll concede the general point that God wants to use most people, but he doesn't want to use me. It might, might be what you're thinking. Because you might say, I- I'm too old. Too old. And to that I would say, Moses just received the greatest calling of his life and he was 80 years old, okay? And you might say, yeah, but this is all new for me, pastor. I, I mean, I'm brand new to church, brand new to the faith. I'm just starting to wade into these waters. And I, I would say to you, that, as far as we know, this was Moses' first interaction with God. We have no evidence that he was a follower of God before this point. And yet, Moses is commissioned to go. But you might say, yeah, Christian, I, I've made some mistakes. I, I've made some real mistakes. Some mistakes I'm, I'm quite frankly, not, not comfortable talking about in church. And to you, I, I would say, the reason Moses ended up in the wilderness is because he killed a man, okay? He knew something about mistakes. And you might say, well, Christian, I have no track record of doing anything. You know, some people just jump in whole hog. I've kind of always lived on the periphery of the ch- church. just kind of always been an observer. And to you, I would say, what was Moses' track record for the first 80 years of his life, okay? Listen to me. Your, your biggest impediment to a life of being used by God is it's not your inadequacy. It's not your past mistakes. It's not your current circumstances. Your biggest impediment, that is the, the biggest blockade that is keeping you from being used by God is the lie, the lie that suggests that God doesn't want to use you, that you're too busy, that you're too ignorant, that you're too anything. We each need to leave with, or, or live rather, with the fundamental belief that God wants to use us, not just the person sitting behind you, not just the person that you came with. God wants to use you really does. And if you allow this truth to take root in your heart, that God wants to use even you, then when God does bring you out of the wilderness, when you do find that job with full-time hours and benefits, when, when your health is restored, when the COVID vaccine is found so that you can come out of your house more often, you will be looking for opportunities to be used by God. For as I've already shared, God brings us out of the wilderness, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. The Lord blesses our financial situation that we might be a blessing to others. He gives us a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit that we might pray for someone at work, that we might share our faith at a Starbucks. The Lord helps us to receive a promotion, that we might help change the culture of our workplace, that we might offer an empathetic ear to the rest of our staff. And the Lord helps us to be accepted into our college of choice that we might make a difference on that campus. Listen, I'm I'm in no way suggesting that God only wants to use you when you're experiencing his blessing. God wants to use you in every season of your life. But what I am suggesting is this. God often answers the prayers of our hearts that we in turn might be an answered prayer for others. Do you know that one? We're, we're running out of time, but let me, let me just look at one more passage, or, or one more verse, because we see this truth played out in this very passage. In verse 9 and 10, God says this, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Do you see what God is saying to Moses here? He is saying, I am sending you out of the wilderness so that you will be an answered prayer for my people. That you will be the means through which I answer their prayers as they cry out to me in their groans of slavery. I mean, what a privilege, what a privilege for Moses. Is there any greater calling that you or I could receive than to be an answered prayer for someone else? Church, you you can be an answered prayer. You you can be an answered prayer to a young woman in central Ohio who doesn't want to abort her baby, yet needs resources, needs guidance. You, You can give regularly to an organization like the Pregnancy Decision Health Center, and you can help meet a real need. You can... Be an answer prayer to an incarcerated man or woman who's praying for hope, for relief, from freedom, from guilt. When it's safe to do so again, you can begin serving in a local prison with an organization like Kairos Prison Ministry. And you can be in a, an answer prayer to someone in this very congregation, someone who is praying for hope, for encouragement, for friendship. You can pick up the phone and you can call a friend here. You can call someone in your home group. You can bake some cookies, you can grill some brats, you can take them over to somebody's house. And even in this small way, you can be an answered prayer. I mean, I just think, what what would this, what could happen if our home groups began to say with one another, how could we be an answered prayer to those around us? Many of our groups are already doing this. You're just so good at coming around someone in your group when they're sick, when they, they need something making meals and giving rides and providing prayer, what would it look like if all of our home groups said we collectively want to help other people in this neighborhood, other people in our church have their prayers answered? If we pool our resources, if we give our time, what what could we do? Let us remember, church, that God longs to use us, that He longs to use you you want to be certain that there is a lie in your life. If, if you believe that God cannot use you and you are, you are a follower of Jesus, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you can guarantee that that is a lie. And let us remember that God often brings us out of the wilderness so that, like Moses, we might be an answered prayer for others. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't we stand? Why don't we stand together? in church, we're going we're to worship and then after that, I'm going to come back and we're going to take communion together. So if you didn't grab a communion element on your way, and why don't you head to the back. And if you're at home, I invite you to pick up some makeshift communion elements, a glass of water and a, and a piece of bread will work just fine. And we'll take communion together after this next song. I encourage you to grab your element. I encourage you to join us from home. privilege to be able to take communion together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and after breaking it, He gave thanks. Saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the gift of communion. Thank you that in good seasons and hard seasons, seasons in which we're on top of the mountain and seasons in which we're down in the dirt, that you have promised to be with us. Thank you that in good and in bad, you have promised us that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be reconciled to the Father. Thank you, Father, for the gift of being your children. We worship you now. We worship you now. You are worthy of our worship. We ask you to receive our worship now, for we come with thankful hearts. Amen.